This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. I will tell you that when you're talking about a literary figure like Thomas Merton, he was so much more than a Trappist monk, considered by a broad cross-section of people in the world of literature, general arts enthusiasts, considered one of the most influential spiritual figures of the 20th century. What, a priest? Really? Writing with that kind of acceptance? Well, let's find out why from his biographer, John M. Sweeney. And John, uh, since it is agreed by so many uh, in and out of the church that Thomas Merton was one of the most influential spiritual figures of the 20th century, let me ask you, though, why you decided to devote this much of your life to following his life and then writing about it. Well, thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure to be with you on The God Show, and it's always a pleasure to talk about Thomas Merton, who has been one of my um, passions since I was probably 17 or 18 years old. So part of my answer to your question is autobiographical, but I don't want to bore you. Um, I also agree with everything you said in your opening, that his, his writings, his influence, is enormous in the second half of the 20th century. And I say in my book somewhere that he, I think he is the most important spiritual writer in the U.S. in the second half of the 20th century. But uh, I have a lot of personal reasons for my interest in him, too, because I, I discovered his writings at a very important time in my life and even flirted with the idea of becoming a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, where he was a monk until he died in 1968. Uh, and then when I didn't, because instead I got married and started to have children, um, nevertheless, I could not shake him loose. And so there's a way in which this book of mine, which is not a big book, took me maybe 30 years to write. Well, that's something considering the fact that it's less than 120 pages. Yes. Well, it's because the publisher asked me uh, it's one of the it's one of these new york publishing houses you know and so the opportunity was <laughs> yes i know to, to, <laughs> the opportunity was to write a book about thomas merton for uh people who aren't already convinced of his greatness you know in other words not to write it for a catholic publisher or a christian publisher where those who pick it up are used to picking up spiritual literature but to write a book that explains why it is that Thomas Merton's reputation is what it is, what his life was all about, what's the scope of the life that he lived, how does that speak to people today, uh, even those, um, sometimes even especially those, who don't find themselves walking in and out of churches very often. So it was that opportunity which also came along with a sort of a restriction on size. Um, the, the purpose of the book was to introduce the life and the teachings and the spiritual practices of Thomas Merton in a way that would be appealing to the 21st century spiritual seeker and would not take up more than about 140 pages. Let's talk about the beginning, uh, or near the beginning. Who was 
Thomas Merton. There are people right now who are listening. This is an international show, but not just the people in the Philippines. People here, people here even in in areas uh, that might have a direct relationship with Thomas Merton's beginnings who might not know anything about him at all. So let's talk about who he was before he became a Trappist monk. Sure. Well, he was born in France. Uh, he was educated in England. So he has, he has a European uh, reputation as well as background, and that informed who he became later. He was educated at Cambridge uh, briefly and then came to the United States and transferred to Columbia University in New York. And all of that is so a result of being born into a family uh, that was artistic. Yes, his father was a painter. His father and his mother both were painters. His mother died when he was quite young. And then uh, Merton's father also died when he was rather young. So by the time he was 16 years old, he was an orphan. And he had a, a friend of the family who became his guardian for the time that he was then in England in secondary school and then at Cambridge. He messed up at Cambridge. He was, he was a rowdy young guy. He was, he was an intellectual. Um, he, was, he was one of those who was always in intellectual circles but also going to parties probably too much. And he ended up uh, getting a young woman, a fellow student, pregnant in Cambridge. And what age? And, uh, it was his first year at school, mm. so he was about 19. And his guardian uh, promptly uh, sent him home, which meant back to New York State where his grandparents lived, and he went and lived with his grandparents. And that background uh, that was as international as it was, as I read the book by our guest, John Sweeney, uh, he seemed to live a life of virtually an orphan, but certainly a lonely child. He was, he was, yes, I think that's true. He was a lonely child. He was an introspective figure. And some of that is positive and some is negative. I mean, those of us who are on the, you know, on, on the, on the extrovert, introvert spectrum, sort of somewhere in the middle, I find myself sort of in the middle. Um, people with that kind of uh, makeup tend to relish the time that they spend alone but then sometimes really enjoy the time that they spend at those parties or those gatherings or giving a talk or whatever, or writing a book, which Merton would end up doing a lot of. Uh, but he loved to spend time alone, too. So, I mean, when he was 18, for instance, the year before he got into trouble, his guardian paid for him to spend a long summer traveling in Europe, and he went to Rome, and he went to France, and he spent most of this time by himself. He had a little bit of his initial spiritual awakening during that time. But then he went, came back and he, and he went up to Cambridge. So yeah, he had, he had a mix of, of those kinds of experiences. And I think you see that in some of these pivotal spiritual and religious figures throughout the centuries, actually. You see that they needed time alone in order to do amazing things when they were not alone. In the case of Thomas Merton, would you consider it a spiritual search? 
Oh, certainly. In fact, I think what perhaps the single the single thing that makes Merton uh, interesting to people still today, because the interest in Thomas Merton is still quite great, uh, and his books are always being discovered, you know, for the first time by people in their twenties. And the reason is is that he continued to search. Even when he was a monk, this is this was his great innovation, really, was that even when he was a monk, you would think that when you're a monk and you're behind those 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 big walls and those those iron doors and you are cloistered, because he was cloistered, he wasn't a friar who was walking around town, he was a cloistered monk. John, he excuse me excuse me for interrupting, but because of the fact that we have such a broad uh, audience experientially uh, within their own uh, definition of faith and spirituality. Would you define those terms before we go on uh, about yes, being cloistered and and uh, his uh, vocation? Yes, sure. So uh, I, I was using words like monk and friar in contrast to one another. So a monk is someone who is in a monastery behind those walls not having much interaction with people on the outside. A friar, on the other hand, is uh, like a Franciscan. Those who come from the tradition of Francis of Assisi are friars. They're not monks. They they very rarely live any kind of a life that is of that cloistered nature, meaning living in a cloister that is behind those walls. Mm -hmm. And instead, they are walking around. They are doing ministries that are constantly in front of and with and beside people who are not friars. Um, that was what Francis of Assisi created. He actually sort of invented the friar in contrast to the monk. But Merton, when he decided uh, that he was supposed to follow a monastic vocation, it was of this monk type, not that friar type. He actually had applied to the Franciscans to be a friar. He taught at a Franciscan university in upstate New York, but he was rejected by the Franciscans, most likely because he had had that experience at Cambridge, and when he did his full confession as part of his application to join them, they took that information, unfortunately, and uh, rejected him as a result. So he then turned to what what else could be the fulfillment of this, you know, churning inside of him, and he he then, you know, sort of rotated to the most severe, uh, serious, penitential, ascetic uh, e uh, expression of monastic life, which was, and in some ways still is, being a Trappist, that mm -hmm. word that you brought up at the beginning, a Trappist monk, which is uh, a version of Benedictine monasticism, which is of medieval origin, but the Trappist expression of that in the United States was a reform movement uh, to make it even more severe, to sort of get back to the the origins of what a monk was supposed to be, which means very severe poverty, uh, very severe uh, restrictions on connections to the outside world, and things like that. So he went from being this gregarious guy at Cambridge University and at Columbia to uh, essentially allowing himself to be locked up behind those walls as a cloistered monk. A transition... It's difficult to understand, wouldn't you say? 
It is, except for those of your listeners who may have or may in the future, I hope, read his great autobiography, which is called The Seven Story Mountain, <clears throat> they will discover that the whole structure of that book uh, begins in the first quarter of it by expressing how what freedom uh, he discovered by being locked behind those those gates and and being housed behind those walls and how counterintuitive that is that's that's one of the real messages of Thomas Merton is a redefinition of what freedom is because freedom had had been for him what it is for most people the idea that I can do whatever I want um, and instead it became by limiting my choices by by putting restrictions on where I'm going to go uh, or who I'm going to see, I am able to find true freedom within myself and in myself to discover who I really am. And the book that you mentioned, Seven Story Mountain, became yes. that- such an enormous bestseller. And it, it was one of those things that was so unlikely for a spiritual autobiography, uh, deep philosophic uh, leanings on every page, and it became an absolutely mammoth success and continues to be. Yes. Yes. When it was published at the end of 1948... <clears throat> then through the end of 1949, it was the best-selling nonfiction book in the United States. Why? It sold more than more than 600,000 copies in hardcover. When I see those numbers, even to this day, I still say, why? Why that book, in a world of, of uh, spiritual treatises, uh, in a number of autobiographies, by sometimes people far better known at the time than Thomas Merton was. Why Seven Story Mountain and this explosion of success? Well, there are lots of answers to that question. You know, lots of people have offered answers to that question. I think the best one and the the one that hits the bullseye most of all is that you have to consider the time in which it was in which it was published. It was immediately after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the fairly rapid succession of the war to end all wars, followed by World War II, where the certainties of, of culture, of civilization, of politics, of the world itself seemed to have fallen away. It, it was no longer clear what the future could possibly hold uh, or what the past was all about because we thought that we knew the way the world worked and who people were and how we would all get along or at least attempt to get along, and it was shattered. Uh, So immediately after World War II, Merton sets out to write this book. Uh, He was in the monastery uh, at the end of World War II, and he was writing his life story. And there were so many, not just GIs who had come back from fighting in Europe or in Asia, but people who had watched what had taken place, uh, people whose lives had been shattered by what had taken place, uh, either directly or, or second or third person uh, effects. 
And people were looking for the meaning of life, quite literally, looking for the meaning of life. I mean, people still are looking for it today, of course. But at that time, there was an urgency to figure out what it meant. And so this was a young man who you could quickly tell uh, from just picking it up and reading a page or two, a very intelligent, smart, savvy, uh, culturally aware uh, young man who had decided to take this radical turn in his life and was talking about how it brought him such freedom and meaning in life. And people wanted to know what that was all about. But I still have this picture, and, and, and I say this as someone who went to Catholic parochial schools uh, and who comes from a, uh, a background of Irish Catholicism over uh, what seems to be centuries, uh, it's very difficult for me to think in terms of Thomas Merton, this literary giant, at the same time living in the seclusion of a monastery. Explain that to me. Well, the way I describe it in, in, in my book is that he, was, he found what he was looking for. Um, when he arrived at the monastery the first time, it was on a spiritual retreat, which is available to anyone. Well, in those days, it was available to any uh, man. These days, it's available to anyone. Um, and he thought that he was finding the answer to what he was looking for then, and then several months later wrote a letter to the abbot and asked if he could come again, and this time perhaps to stay. And when he went again, he packed his bag. It was right when, by the way, it was right when Pearl Harbor was attacked in December of 1941 that he was arriving at the monastery to stay, and he had packed all of his belongings into a big trunk, you know, the kind of trunk that people used to travel with. And he wasn't looking at going back. He was there to stay. And, and as he writes in the Seventh Story Mountain, um, he says, he says, Brother Matthew, who was the, the monk who was in charge of receiving visitors, Brother Matthew uh, locked the gate behind me and I was enclosed in the four walls of my new freedom. This is what I was referring to before. So, you know, this weary and confused, uh, smart and disappointed, uh, wandering Thomas Merton found what he had been looking for behind the gates of this Trappist monastery in rural Kentucky, of all places. So he was able to put the, you know, that, that traveling case in a closet and for good, and that was just fine with him. But it, and even as a dedicated Roman Catholic priest, as a monk, as a as a Trappist monk, uh, and uh, for non-Catholics also, when we're talking about uh, being uh, truly isolated, you're isolated from other monks to the degree that silence is almost mandatory. Uh, and uh, so there's not even that kind of communication that goes on between human beings that are in the same geographic area as you. And yet, even as a dedicated Roman Catholic priest, he has an affair. And, and that, was, that was a surprise to me in reading your book, John Sweeney. 
Well, that happened a lot later. So, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened between between his entering and that sin, of course, as Catholics would call it, or that mistake. Um, there were a dozen books. There were, you know, bestsellers. There were uh, many feature articles in Time magazine about this interesting monk. I mean, Thomas Merton was the most, uh, ironically, was the most visible monk probably since, St. Augustine in the 5th century. You know, it had been 1,500 years between famous monks. So it was after a lot of those things took place that Merton had this experience. Yes, he had this experience in the early 60s when he was in Louisville having a medical procedure because he, he had a lot of little physical ailments and he was often having to go to Louisville for something or another. Now, he was still he was still talking about, though, someone uh, that essentially was cloistered in a Kentucky um, uh, monastery. Uh, and, and so he went to Louisville. This is what, one of the reasons I brought this up, because I found it surprising, because it always seemed to me that Merton was someone who became more and more immersed in the extremely private life of uh, of a Trappist monk. Uh, so when he when he left the cloister of those walls, it seemed to me that nothing could ever become a temptation to Thomas Merton. <laughs> and that's why it's a surprise to those of us who are easily tempted. Yeah, I, I understand. Yes, you would think so, I suppose. Although, if you if you meet monks, I mean, that sounds kind of funny maybe, but I mean, you can still meet monks today. Anyone who goes on a, uh, a spiritual retreat to a Trappist monastery, and there are several of them in the United States, uh, you will meet a monk or two, particularly if you decide you would like to do so. Anyone who's on a retreat at a monastery has the has the option usually of having a, a spiritual consultation with a monk while you're there. We the have Franciscans. Of, we have Franciscans here, uh, in fact, just a very short distance uh, from where we're doing this broadcast. John. Yes. Yes, I was saying that we we have Franciscans here, and so we have occasion uh, to. Uh, uh, to meet various members of the religious, uh, even in a community as large as as Phoenix is, but it isn't like Trappist life. Well, no, no. But what I was going to say is that if you meet these these men, you'll see that they're they're normal men. You know, I mean, they're they're men who have taken vows. Uh, they're they are men who live a different life than you do, but. They are human. They are they are normal. They will sometimes talk about um, the life they lived before they got to the monastery. They mm-hmm. sometimes will talk about the things that upset them now or that bother them. Or I mean, there are ways in which it becomes clear that they are normal people and they have the same kinds of temptations and difficulties and frustrations and joys that we do. So uh, that's one thing. But the other thing to, to note is that before Merton had this experience with a, with a nurse in Louisville, which was in 1966, before he had that experience, 
he had he lived this very public life, ironically, as a monk. And part of what that entailed was that people, both ordinary and famous, would come to see him. So even though he was living in the cloister, which we've described, uh, he nevertheless was in, living as a public intellectual in a lot of ways. His books made him that way. He was publicly making his opinions known on issues not just of theological and spiritual importance, but sometimes the issues of the day. Uh, sometimes his abbot and others within his religious order were telling him to stop talking about the issues of the day, like the Vietnam War, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, and sometimes he was going around the restrictions that were put upon him because he was sort of quietly refusing to obey that order. And I discuss these things, too, in my book. But anyway, so he had this experience. I mean, this was a this was a monk who would receive a visitor like Joan Baez at the monastery. Yes. So so it's, it's, it's not as if he was simply cloistered and then all of a sudden had this transgression with a nurse in Louisville. Uh, by the way, can you from memory... Uh, and from the book Thomas Merton, which I'm assuming you have committed totally to memory page by page, uh, <laughs> John Sweeney, this is John, J-O-N, uh, for those of you who will be looking him up after this program, John M. Sweeney. The name of the book is simply Thomas Merton, subtitled An Introduction to His Life, Teachings, and Practices, which seem in the reading of his life to be infinite. Uh, but would you, by memory, remember some of those other celebrated, well-known people, famous names, uh, who visited him or communicated with him? I was kind of surprised at the variety of people uh, who were as fascinated as the rest of us with the life of Thomas Merton. Yes. Well, and some of them are names that are going to be known to those of your listeners who are interested in literature or in uh, 20th century religion, uh, and perhaps not a name like Joan Baez. In terms of other names that are similar to Joan Baez, um, there aren't a lot that quite fit that profile, you know, that platform. But there were uh, many literary figures like Wendell Berry, the novelist yes. and poet. Wendell Berry would come to visit Merton at the monastery. Uh, so would uh, members of other religious traditions, because one of the ways in which Merton was uh, a groundbreaking figure was in his relationships with people of other religious traditions, his friendships, and his reaching out to understand other other religious traditions. And in many, in many ways, incorporate some of their understandings of of the world or of uh, truths in their own scriptures into his life and his own writings as well. Including, including the Dalai Lama. Yes. So, yeah. So the Dalai Lama is one. Uh, the Dalai Lama did not come to Kentucky to see Merton, but Merton at the end of his life, uh, and maybe we'll get to this before we're done talking, Pat, he died in Asia. Merton died in Asia because he attended a conference of monastic uh, leaders from around the world of different religious traditions. And while he was in Bangkok, Thailand for that conference, he also traveled in India and elsewhere to 
see a lot of things that he had been reading about for so many years and to meet people like the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama called him a brother. They, had, they, they developed such a friendship in a short time that he referred to him as his brother. And then another famous religious figure that maybe a lot of people have heard of is, is one named Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. who uh, is, was, and still is a v- Vietnamese Buddhist uh, Zen teacher. He's very old right now, um, but he is still with us. And they met, uh, Merton and Thich Nhat Hanh met at the Abbey in, in Kentucky. So there were many people coming to see him. Some of them were unwanted. I mean, sometimes it was people who wanted to see the famous monk who was living up on the hill in uh, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and they weren't exactly uh, wanted uh, visitors. But then there were also famous visitors. But from a lonely life uh, to uh, experiences in free living uh, to a monastery, and his interest then in Eastern religion uh, didn't narrowly maintain uh, simply the friendship uh, with leaders of Eastern religions, but in the religions themselves. Uh, it, it was unusual, at least to my way of thinking, as a Catholic, and then uh, as someone who uh, w- was practicing monastic life, for him to take such an interest in a number of the religions of the East. Please pursue that for us. Yes, he was He was fascinated, uh, probably most of all, by Zen, uh, the the person who brought Zen teaching to the United States more than any other at that time, and in the beginning of when this first occurred in the in the U.S., was named D.T. Suzuki, and uh, he became Merton's close friend. Uh, Merton corresponded with him a lot. They met on a few occasions, and Merton uh, wrote books uh, that reflected on Suzuki's teachings and on a Catholic understanding and, in some ways, appropriation of Zen principles. He sort of brought the two together. The real foundational experience that that brought this, that made this possible, is one of the trajectories that you have to see from the author of The Seven Story Mountain, you know, that autobiography that was published in late 1948. You have to see where he goes from there to the 60s by the time he starts writing about things like Zen. Because in the Seventh Story Mountain, readers of that book then and now will still see and hear a tone of triumphalism, if I can use that word, meaning I am right and everyone else is wrong. There are some some comments that Merton makes in that youthful autobiography that he was later embarrassed to have made. Uh, where he criticizes those who are not Catholic. And so his, his, his mind expanded. And again, this is one of those great ironies that you keep bringing up, is that he's in a cloister, mm-hmm. he's in a monastery, and how is it that he expands in these ways? But that's part of what makes him such an interesting figure, is that his network of friends became larger, his, his understanding of the world became broader, and a lot of people uh, will point to a singular experience that Merton had, um, which we probably should mention, because if you're going to talk about Thomas Merton for an hour, you ought to mention what happened to him in March of 1958. It's often referred to as, as sort of a revelation that he experienced. Um, 
those from Eastern religious traditions would call it a form of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But he was, again, he was in Louisville, had some business to do in Louisville, needed to be in Louisville for an afternoon. And he records in one of his best books, he records that he's in Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, which I think now is the corner of 4th and MLK. Muhammad uh, Ali. Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Uh, oh, Oh, maybe it's Muhammad. No, it's Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, Ali Drive. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh, anyway, he's, he says, you know, I'm in the middle of the shopping district, and I'm suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I love all of these people, that they are mine and I am theirs, and that we could not possibly be alien to one another, even though we are strangers. Um, so it's 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 as if he he used to live in this separateness that he was pursuing by going into the monastery. But by being in the monastery, having that freedom to figure out what life was all about and who he truly was, he went from that separateness to this inclusiveness, uh, this inclusive way of understanding all people. And that ended up expanding to other religious traditions as well. We're talking with John M. Sweeney, the author of so many books, so many biographies. Uh, the one we're talking about is that of Thomas Merton. Fascinating broad-ranging personality, uh, the diversity in his life uh, alone is reason to follow uh, the story and stories of Thomas Merton. But here's one. Pope Francis, yes, this Pope, invited to speak to Congress, and in the address he singled out Four Americans. Take it from here, John. <laughs> well, I, I, I remember I say this at the beginning of my book that I was one of the uh, one of the people, one of many, many, many people uh, from the research I've done who were sitting in my living room watching Pope Francis's speech live before a joint session of Congress, and. Pope Francis brought up four exemplary Americans. That's how he referred to them, four exemplary Americans in his speech, and named them by name and, and said briefly something about each one of them. And they were uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr., and Thomas Merton. Mm. And I was shocked, as were many, many other people who loved Thomas Merton, but who never thought that we would hear the Pope praising Thomas Merton, certainly not before a joint session of Congress. And and prior to uh, Thomas Merton's life, there had been so many influential uh, Catholic Americans, American Catholics, that might have been mentioned, so many uh, who had influenced great charity, within the church, and yet Thomas Merton, there with, <laughs> with Abraham Lincoln, MLK, Dorothy Day, uh, I thought was a remarkable story. And it must yeah, have surprised absolutely. you. Oh, yeah, certainly. Because for many, for many Catholics uh, in the United States, uh, Merton has not been one of their fam their favorite figures. Uh, in part, it's because this episode with uh, a nurse in 1966 in Louisville has been 
publicly known for at least the last 20 years or so. But even before that, uh, older Catholics will remember Merton's writings against uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, Merton was passionately anti-war, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it came to the incursions in Vietnam and Cambodia and so on. And his connections with other uh, religious figures at that time, like the Berrigan brothers, uh, Philip and Daniel Berrigan, the yes. Jesuits who were always getting arrested by protesting the war and burning draft cards and so on, his connection with these people was very, very close. Uh, and they were very good friends and they were supporting, he was supporting them publicly. And there were not many bishops uh, in the Catholic Church, certainly in 1966, you know, 67, 68, who had uh, any appreciation for that kind of a stance. Yes. So Merton had this very prophetic role to play, and a prophetic role to play usually doesn't make you a favorite among the, the, you know, the U.S. Council of Bishops, and then that often doesn't make you a favorite among the Catholic faithful. I don't know whether it makes any difference, by the way, uh, to anyone listening right now, but uh, it makes a difference to me to acknowledge the fact that as we have addressed the fact that uh, Thomas Merton, uh, as, a, uh, as a college boy, um, had uh, fathered a child uh, who later died. Is that right? The child... Uh, John? That, that's, what we, that's what we believe happened, is that the child died in one of the Blitz raids yes. during, towards the end of World War II. Another part of the dramatic life of Thomas Merton. But as we talk about the nurse in Louisville, we're not talking about some one-night stand uh, that was the Trappist monk giving in to the temptations of the flesh. Uh, as I have read your book, he genuinely loved Marge. Yes. Yes. She, she's often referred to in the, in the literature about Merton simply as M. Uh, but yes, her name was Margie. And, you know, to her great credit, I think, um, she never wrote her own expose memoir. Mm-hmm. We, we, so we don't know, we don't know her side of the story. But, you're right. It was not a one-night stand. It, it was instead, in fact, I don't think it was about sex. Am I allowed to say the word sex <laughs> on your program? I, I, if you I, could I, only I, know, John, <laughs> the number of words that have been used in this program in the 22 years that it's been on. Uh, but I'm glad you're well, bringing I, this up because I didn't know about Marge. I don't delve into usually that part of an author's uh, background unless it makes a difference in his writing. Uh, but, but it seemed from Thomas Merton's point of view, he cared deeply for her. He did. Uh, there's a way in which, um, not to psychoanalyze too much, um, but maybe just a little bit, but there's a way in which ever since Merton's mother died when he was a little boy, and he actually was un, he was not allowed to see her uh, when she was in the hospital just before she died because that was sort of the custom of the day you know we should we should we should be careful of what we allow our children to see it would traumatize our child to see the the mother dying but of course we know differently now he desperately needed to see his mother at the at that last at those late moments but ever since his mother died when he was little he he did not really know love. He was trying to find love. Um, all of us, 
I mean, the, 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 the trajectories of all of our lives are in some ways trying to find love, mm-hmm. wishing that we could love more and be loved more. And so I think what happened with uh, Margie was that he was suddenly faced with this beautiful, uh, intimate, uh, physical connection and love, and he had never really experienced this before. Uh, he didn't quite know what to do with it. He knew that he was breaking his vows. He snuck around for a period of weeks. Um, there, there were, you know, private picnics and get-togethers and, and private conversations on the monastery phone, which was not allowed. He knew he was breaking his vows. He knew he was doing wrong. Um, but it was, he had found true intimacy. Now, one thing that I that I do in, in my book is I you have to actually talk about it today in a way that's a little bit different than I think the way that we would have talked about this 10 years ago or 20 years ago because the Me Too movement has very rightly uh, brought, you know, brought to our attention the way in which relationships like the one that Merton had with Margie could be abusive even though it was a mutual, seemed to be a mutual experience mm-hmm. between them simply because... He was a figure of international renown. He was 51 years old. She was an unknown nurse who was 25. So simply that is inappropriate. I think we have to say that. You know. um, but when you read what Merton wrote, it was just ecstatic because he kept private journals, which were then later published. I mean, he did not intend that we would be reading these things later, I'm sure. But uh, he wrote ecstatically about his discovery of love and for him, it was love that helped him to understand God better, not just simply to understand himself and Margie. And he lived, and he studied, and he wrote, and this fascinating human being, Thomas Merton, had so many experiences, including his bizarre and controversial death. Talk to our audience about that. Yes. Well, I mentioned earlier that he was in Bangkok, Thailand. Yes. And he was at a, a conference on, of interfaith, multi-faith monastic leaders talking about the future of monasticism in this turbulent world. It was 1968, late November, early December 1968. He had also been traveling all over Asia, as I mentioned earlier, went to see the Dalai Lama and other uh, important religious figures and sites, things that he wanted to see. He had been gone from the monastery for quite a long time. Uh, he gave a very interesting talk in which he, he talked about his own identity crisis as a monk who was trying to find how he identifies uh, himself as a monk and as a human being in a world of revolution. Because this was 1968. It was a world of revolution. And he finished that talk, and he went back to his room, and he took a bath, and he got out of the tub and touched a fan with bad wiring and was electrocuted. And his body was found later by uh, Archbishop Rembert Weekland, who was the Archbishop, who was later the Archbishop of, of Milwaukee, where I live, uh, but who was a Benedictine monk and was also at the conference and discovered his body. And then one of the great, you know, ironies at the very end of his life is that his body was sent back to the United States on a military plane 
with uh, the fallen dead bodies of soldiers killed in Vietnam, uh, a war that he had protested with every every ounce he had, uh, but he would have had great great love and affection for those young men. But yes, that 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 was the available plane to to bring his body back. But there are priests and there are members of the religious worldwide who may die in uh, accidents of a variety of uh, accidents and they aren't considered controversial and yet as I read in your book and as I've read uh, in other biographical uh, pieces about Thomas Merton uh, there continues to still be a question about the the actual uh, death of Thomas Merton, whether it was an accident or whether it was suicide. Well, and there's actually one other option that is often bandied about as well. The the suicide option, I think, is silly, is foolish. Um, there, there really is no evidence or, or reason to think that he would ever be a, a candidate for dying by suicide. So I, I don't really even give that any any time at all. But there are those who thought that he might never come home. Uh, he had he had written a couple of letters while he was away that made it sound like he was going to extend his trip uh, in his journal that he kept at that time, which was later published after his death, called the Asian Journal. He has various statements in his journal where he talks about dreams that he had that he was dressed in a Buddhist monk's habit. You know, or a Zen habit. Uh, you know, he was either Tibetan or Zen. And he's having these kinds of dreams, and so uh, there's been a lot of theories that maybe he never would have come home. Maybe he would have taken his his journey even to a, a further, you know, dimension of interfaith understanding to become something more or other than a Catholic monk, to become a Buddhist or a Tibetan monk, or maybe to figure out a way to combine the two, because he was an incredibly creative uh, thinker um, and writer, and he, yeah, that's, a, that's a possibility. But um, I think in the end, his, his vow of stability, which is one of the vows that a monk makes before, becoming, uh, before joining a monastery, his vow of stability was something that he took so seriously, and it was that vow that is what brought him back to his life uh, at the monastery after he had this experience with uh, Margie in 1966. He was asked by his abbot, confronted by his abbot, and he repented and remembered his vow of stability, which means when it comes down to it, I stay here. Um, my heart may have gone somewhere else. Um, I may have a desire to go somewhere else, but when it comes down to it, I have a vow to stay put, to stay literally right here on this soil. Um, a monk takes that very seriously, and Merton took that very seriously. So I think in the end, the evidence is is that he was headed home, but he died by this freak accident. But what other theory was there? That well, that was it. I mean, it was it was those are the other two options that are usually discussed. It, there have been some who have who have written articles and things about how he, he actually committed suicide. You know, so if you if you die while you're alone, of course there are always going to be questions. And he died while he was alone, being electrocuted. And but 
anyone who lived with him, if you interview the monks who lived with him, mm-hmm. you discover that he was a klutz. He was constantly a klutz. <laughs> so to them, when, when they found out that he was electrocuted getting out of the tub, they thought, oh, well, that makes perfect sense because it's exactly the kind of stupid thing he would do. Um, so, I mean, it was either that or else it was that he, would, he wouldn't come home because he would find some new experience in Asia and want to remain there. I mean, oh. those are the two theories that are talked about. And, 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 of course, our audience now is left with the fact that the author of their beloved seven-story mountain may also have been a klutz. Uh, <laughs> oh, he, he was definitely a klutz. Tell me, uh, if you will, John, having lived a part of your life with the life of Thomas Merton, uh, tell me what you may have thought in the past as you were writing the book what he would have been, what he would have become, what he would have written if he had lived. You know, over the years I have tried, I've thought about that a lot, and I've deliberately not uh, written about it. Although in this book, I do make some suggestions of people today who are who are teaching and living uh, principles that I think Merton would have embraced, and one of them is is Richard Rohr, who is a name that is probably well known yes. to some of your listeners. Uh, Father Richard Rohr and his various teachings, I think, are the kind of thing that Merton would be about. But what Merton would also be about is. The kind of is not the sort of thing that Richard Rohr gets involved in very much. Is he was very politically active. Uh, you know his relationship with the Berrigan brothers I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> and with Vietnam protests in general, and his his work uh, behind the scenes during the American Civil Rights Movement uh, was was profound. So there's no question in my mind that Merton would be at the forefront of things like Black Lives Matter protests and conversations and he would be fighting he'd be amazed that we still are fighting for these things i think um but he would be involved in both so he had this deeply contemplative side uh which is the side that's represented by people like richard Rohr, but he also had a real activist side even though he was doing it mostly by letter and by uh public statement and articles published and things and I think he would still be doing that as well if he were with us today. And his legacy? Well, his legacy is as, I think, the most profound spiritual writer of the second half of the 20th century in the U.S., and one who his his audience uh, continues to find new readers all the time. He's not one of those authors who is just a piece of the past. Uh, to pick up a Merton book like The Sign of Jonas or The Seven Story Mountain or Zen and the Birds of Appetite or The Asian Journal that I mentioned before is in many ways to discover that we, ha- we, have, we have a long way to go to keep catching up with him. He speaks for the spiritual seeker, whether you are Christian or Catholic or not. He, I mean, I know atheists who love Merton. I know Buddhists who love Merton. And uh, to turn to to turn to Merton's writings is to help you figure out who you are, because that was the point of his work was to try and help 
himself and you find who is your true self, who is your true identity, and to let that false identity and that false self fall away. Reflect in the couple of minutes that we have left uh, for this conversation about a, a really remarkable person in our time. Uh, reflect what you think he might have been in this period of time with social media, with hundreds and hundreds of television channels, with this massive variety of communication that exists. Uh, would Thomas Merton have used them all, or would he have been more monastic even now and stayed behind the walls to protect himself from the 21st century? Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think of it as protecting himself, uh, but I, I think that he would have stayed behind the walls in the sense of that is where his grounding came from, and he knew that. It was from regular practices of prayer and meditation, uh, friendships with his fellow monks, the spiritual counsel of his abbot, uh, these are the kinds of things that that are the regular features of a monk's daily life. And these are the things that fed him. So I'm quite sure that he would not have changed that. He would not have sought to change that. I can't imagine him tweeting. I think there's no such thing as a tweeting Trappist. Uh, I'm writing that I, down right now. <laughs> uh I, I don't think he would have had a public Facebook page. I mean, I imagine that his his impact would have been increased in the age of social media when we would have all been waiting to see what he had to say in his next book or in the article he had coming out in Commonweal uh, magazine or something like that because we would know that it came from a deep reservoir. Um, and you know there are there are monastic figures, both nuns and monks today, who do play a role like that. Um, they don't play it on such a public stage in the way that Merton did. Uh, occasionally they do, like the nuns on the bus from several years ago. Oh yes. But I think I think that Thomas Merton would would be that reservoir of wisdom for both the contemplative and the active life. But I think he would still be doing it from behind. Uh, monastery walls. In reading and being moved by this very small book about a very, very big man, uh, less than 120 pages on a life so full that uh, I imagine that John Sweeney feels that there are some untold parts of the life of Thomas Merton that I thought of as John Sweeney's friend as I read this book. Thank you for joining us on The God Show.